Hi, and welcome to The Intersect. I'm Eric Tischler. Apt Associates tackles complex challenges around the world, ranging from improving health and education to assessing the impact of environmental changes. For any given problems, we bring multiple perspectives to the table. We thought it would be enlightening and maybe even fun to pair up colleagues from different disciplines so they can share their ideas and perhaps spark new thinking about how we solve these challenges. Today I'm joined by two of those colleagues, Amy Checkaway, who's calling in from our Cambridge Mass offices, and sitting across from me here in App Studio One in Rockville, Maryland, is Sam Dastrup. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Eric. It's great to join you this morning. Likewise. Amy's a skilled senior project manager and public policy expert with more than 20 years of experience working on early education, K-12 education, social service program evaluations, and research studies. Sam is an experienced applied microeconomist and leader of research teams examining the effectiveness of approaches to assisting homeless families, low-income renters, and low-income workers seeking additional training. So, typically on The Intersect, we talk about how colleagues who maybe don't normally get to work together could do so on specific projects tackling singular and significant challenges. What's interesting to me this month is that Amy and Sam are tackling similar challenges simultaneously through different lenses. We're talking about income inequality, housing affordability, achievement gaps in school. These are issues we're struggling with in the U.S., and we know these are the social determinants of health that can impact families over generations. So how do we close the opportunity gap to ensure families have the resources and capabilities they need to overcome obstacles that may arise? Amy and Sam have been investigating this question from two different angles, housing and early childhood education. So Sam, let's start with you. You've been working on housing mobility. Uh, what do we mean when we're talking about housing mobility? Thanks, yes. So to start, research shows that neighborhoods make a difference in people's life, that, that where you live and uh, c- can affect life outcomes, a variety of life outcomes. And specifically, there's a, a growing body of evidence that documents that low-income children uh, benefit from spending more of their childhood living in neighborhoods that have lower poverty rates, that have uh, you know schools that have higher proficiency rates, and and in neighborhoods that have lower crime. So the idea of housing mobility is that uh, households essentially choose to locate or relocate to neighborhoods that provide more opportunity for improved like life outcomes. And and we, it's you know the mobility term kind of linked a little bit to the idea of income mobility as well that there's potential for intergenerational uh, improvements in in families and in, in households outcomes specifically you know household income and wealth and those and those indicators. So there's the idea of of moving to places where there's better opportunities, right? H- how do we help people get to this place of opportunity? My most recent research around mobility is in this idea of just the rent barrier around whether folks can move. And so um, for a long time, the, the generosity of a housing choice voucher, so housing choice voucher program is, is the largest um, rent subsidy program uh, that the federal government runs, assists around 2.5 million children in the U.S., which is about 20 to 25% um, of, of folks that are eligible. And, and historically, there's been one rent level for an entire metropolitan area. And so um, HUD did a demonstration. They, they, they did an experiment where they allowed higher rent subsidies in, in neighbors and in areas that had higher rents, which is correlated with a lot of our opportunity measures. Uh, and they became somewhat less generous in, in zip codes that have lower rents. And, and I had the chance to, to do the evaluation of this, to go and research and say, well, what did this do in terms of where folks ended up living? Right. 
And the big picture takeaway is that it didn't really change how often folks moved, but when, when households receiving vouchers, and especially families with children, did move for other reasons, they, they ended up more frequently in higher opportunity and higher rent neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And, and so they were able to, to use these vouchers to move into neighborhoods um, that were in the, the upper range uh, in our opportunity measures. So this is an example uh, of a policy tweak that HUD has made uh, that, that, that potentially takes away some of that barrier in terms of the rent being too high. Right. I want to get Amy in here, but, but let me ask you one last question. Um, so w- they make the move, and what are the, what are the benefits that, that we're seeing once they make that move? Yeah, you bet. The, the benefits uh, here uh, th- that are kind of motivating these policy tweaks come from research around uh, uh, studies that APT was part of decades ago uh, because intergenerational outcomes take 20 to 30 years to, to see and to, sh- and to measure. And so uh, what has, what's been found in what's called the Moving to Opportunity Experiment follow-ups by a team, uh, Chetty, Hendren, and Katz, have, have shown that children that spent their early childhood and more years of their early childhood in higher opportunity neighborhoods um, have have better income earnings and, and uh, post-secondary education outcomes and household formation outcomes, a lot of these things that we think of as intergenerational improvement in, in their early 20s and 30s. So the idea here then is that folks that are now able to, to move with their kids to these, these higher opportunity neighborhoods will hopefully have these same benefits 15 to 20 years down the road that these, these kids will have better, uh, better earnings and, and employment outcomes and better relationships and household formation outcomes 15 to 20 years from now. Fantastic. And so that's a great segue to Amy because, um, as you mentioned, not everyone chooses to move. Not everyone can qualify. And 20 to 25% of folks that are eligible are even, even have access to, to the subsidy. Right. So, so what, what, what about everyone else who wants to have some of these opportunities uh, that come of these neighborhoods? And I'm thinking particularly of early childhood. And uh, Amy, I know that's something you've been working on in terms of local solutions. Do you want to speak to that? So yeah, um, I think that assuming that not all families are able to um, move out of their neighborhoods, um, we've been involved in evaluating a really exciting model in Massachusetts um, that has really entailed in making serious investments um, in local communities, um, particularly some of the most disadvantaged communities in the Commonwealth, and moreover, trying to provide high-quality early education to um, some of the families who are really the most disconnected from the system, both in terms of being both very poor and never having the opportunity to be in formal childcare in the past. And so we just finished an evaluation of this model to expand preschool, um, which involved community-based organizations um, setting up new preschool classrooms in collaboration with their local public school districts who provided intensive professional development and coaching to teachers. So excitingly, we found um, strong positive impacts and we found that early academic skills, so their early literacy, their early mathematics, as well as their vocabulary development was significantly improved by um, having access to this program. Along with this, um, because of the federal resources available, um, these programs really invested in uh, the parents um, of these kids and provided them with both direct services, including educational opportunities, um, parenting classes, um, 
opportunities to connect with other families, um, as well as referrals to other kid supports and services within the community. And we found uh, some positive economic outcomes um, after uh, families had been um, in this program for a year in terms of employment and income. So not only were kids more prepared for school, um, which we know we know that if, if kids are already behind when they enter kindergarten, um, they're much more likely to remain behind really for the rest of their K through 12 career. But we also um, think that this program contributed to families um, being in a better position to um, continue to help support uh, their households and, um, and you know, potentially be more mobile in the longer term. So I think the really exciting thing about this intervention is that um, we found large impacts um, that are really comparable to those that have been found in public school preschool programs. And this was a really exciting partnership within communities between systems. So these are community-based um, organizations and public school districts working together um, that uh, do not typically uh, collaborate. And so I think it's exciting to think about the possibilities for um, scaling up this kind of approach. Great. And you were talking about mobility. Are we talking about the same kind of mobility that Sam's talking about? Or are we talking about families that are able to invest and build better lives in place, as it were, where they are? Right. I mean, I think this um, this is really an approach that is trying to build resources within within communities. Um and so, you know, we we don't know what the longer term outcomes will sure. be for these families, whether or not, you know, sort of, again, because they um, may be more likely to be employed and be making more money if that will lead to them staying within the community or not. But I, I, again, I think this is really um, an approach that emphasizes trying to draw on the resources that are already in the community. Uh, and, you know, the public school system is compared to a lot of the the child care programs that are operated in, in community-based programs, you know, relatively well-resourced. So it's, it's really a, um, an approach that sort of meets people where they are. We know that families prefer to have their kids in um, child care that's close to their home. Um, and, you know, I think often these families are working in their communities. And so um, this really provides opportunities like those in more affluent communities to these um, to these parents. I think a real challenge is that there, this um, federal grant um, allowed a lot of states to have the opportunity to invest much more substantially in early childhood programs than is typically available. And so these kids, through the grant uh, in Massachusetts, they were able to invest about $18,000 per child um, on average um, in, again, sort of these intensive supports, both for kids and their families. Um, and um, I think it's a challenge is um, once these sort of large federal grants go away, it's really hard for communities to sustain that kind of investment, um, given that the early childhood system in general is, is very under-resourced. Right. So let me ask both of you, because um, I think in both cases, we're, we're seeing some exciting results from programs that have a finite capacity, right? What, what might the future hold in terms of figuring out what the next steps are? You know, I think that there's some some great work being done on the other barriers to to, to kind of housing mobility uh, that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. So, you know, in in addition to the economic barriers, you know, there's often social barriers and, and logistical barriers, and and so there's 
some great new research coming out, um, as well as some some efforts in in HUD's research agenda moving forward to look at ways to improve the logi the logistics of, of these moves, to, to communicate with landlords and to provide information to households about apartments that they might be able to, to, to now afford, uh, given the, the change rent structure of the program, and, uh, and as well as social barriers, kind of thinking there's, there's some great sociological work. Anna Jefferson here at APT Associates is, is one person that's talked to a lot of folks about these ideas around a sense of belonging and, and, and support networks and, and the role that that plays. So, so I think thinking about these barriers and how to overcome them and keeping in mind that we want you know, policies that, that are, are designed in a way that they don't contribute to the problem, you know, I think that's, those are the things that I'm thinking about moving forward. Great, how about you, Amy? Yeah, you know, I think there's increased recognition both federally and at the state level where a lot of the action happens um, in terms of early childhood uh, sort of programming and policy making that an integrated system um, is the only way to sort of be able to ensure that kids are getting a high quality experience really from prenatally through, again, the time they enter school. And so there's continued um, a continued push you know, within state agencies for agencies to be working together. Historically, early childhood, the system has been very siloed because there's different federal funding streams going to different programs across different state agencies. And, and those programs are not sort of working together to, to support families holistically. You know, and I think, again, this Massachusetts model is a great example of a model that really sort of forced forced local collaboration, but also focused on the, the kids and families and all of the needs that they may have and sort of meeting them where they are. So I think there's pretty broad-based support for investing in early childhood because, you know, research continues to show the importance of these early experiences for, for um, kids to succeed in school and in life. And I think, again, integrated approaches to um, serving families and their kids by sort of braiding together all the resources that exist is hopefully the way of the future. Great. Well, I, I thank you both for joining me. I really love that, you know, just between the two of you alone, we're really looking at sort of this whole lifespan of success for families from the early childhood through the, through the parents and the families and hopefully to subsequent generations. So I think it's great to get together and, and sort of lay that out on the table and take a look at it. And actually, Amy, you touched on themes that we discussed in last month's episode in terms of systems working together more closely to help families. So, boom, our first multi-month intersect. And on that note, thank you both for joining me. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us at The Intersect. 